Well, again, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you all here. And uh, as you know, and I mentioned earlier, that we are in a sermon series entitled Relational Reboot, where we've been challenged as we move towards Christmas to look at our relationship with God through Christ and to look at our relationships with others and what God would call us to do to reboot those and to kind of re-engage at a, a new level. And so this morning, the message that we're going to hear is brought by a very dear friend of mine, Dr. Martin Sanders. Uh, Dr. Sanders, or I just simply call him Martin or Doc, he oversees the doctoral programs at Nyack Seminary in Nyack, New York. I met him through a family, the Sorensen family here in Charlottesville and at City, and we became fast friends. We've been doing some ministry together, and so he's going to come and preach a message on family. Let's give a warm City Church welcome to Martin Sanders. I was here just about a year ago, and so it's good to be back. Some of you have gotten significantly better looking since then, <laughs> and then a couple others. Keep, keep going. <laughs> keep going. It's always interesting when you're supposed to come and talk about families, because it either brings a sense of sort of warmth, or then there's the other side. Like, do, do we have to? Family is unique in that no matter what stage of life you find yourself at this time, you all came from family. So I'm going to ask you to reframe it. The phrase you've been using is reboot. I'm going to ask you as we begin today to reframe it. Because you, no one just appears mysteriously on the planet alone. You come from some place. In the old days of AT&T, they started something called Friends and Family, and they were surprised how many people signed up. And I thought, well, there's several ways to interpret the research, but one of them is people were hoping for different friends and family. That's why so many signed up. And so this morning, I want to talk to you about how to get the family you've always wanted. Now, that's not idealized. Come on. There's no such thing as an ideal family. Because even if it's almost idealized, some of you have such perfectionistic tendencies that no matter how close it gets to really great, there's always something slightly off. So what I want to talk to you about today is how to get the family you've always wanted as far as how do we aim for something. Now, I'm keenly aware of how many people here are currently not married. I'm one of them. Diana passed just a little over three years ago. We were married just shy of 42 years. So I fit the category now. It's interesting being in New York. The stats are really interesting. The newest stats are that in every gathering you will be a part of, for the most part across our country, at least 30% of the people are currently not married. They said in church it's almost 40% most places. Some go over 50%. We also, they also just stated that in Manhattan, the average age of first marriage is 37 and a half. So I'm keenly aware that audience does not fit a profile. So sit back and relax. Today, family is about belonging. As we look at the text together, family will simply be about belonging. So let's just begin to ask a series of questions. What kind of family do I want? 
kind of family do I want? I'm one who does popular level research. I do other kinds too, but I'm most fascinated by popular level research. I have like 2,000 responses to this and 800 to this. I have over 1,000 people that I surveyed and said, tell me what kind of family you want. Over 80%, their most common response is, I want a good family. <laughs> Seriously? That, that, that's, you've not thought any more deeply than that? I mean, no one actually said, I want one of those kind of families that embarrasses you at every turn. You know, the kind that when they're young, you have the principal's office on speed dial, and then as it gets older, it's the police station, and then it moves ahead from there. No one says that. Some of us get that, but none of us hope for that. Which just reinforced to me, we want something we've never actually conceptualized. We want a good family. Well, who doesn't? But what does it take for you to get there? So what kind of families have I seen? Because most of us replicate something similar. Even if we say we don't want to, we tend to replicate a big part of what we've seen. What kind of people are we? You have to work with who you are and what you're like. Diana and I figured out a long time ago, we were not high structure people. And the people who, when we were new to faith, people wanted to disciple us in high structure. And I said, I'm kind of too young for this, but I'm a bit of a leftover hippie. Yeah, high structure and me don't go together. You keep pushing this, you're going to get the not so good side of me. No, we were the fun people. So we figured out our structure was to create a family where love abounded and we laughed a lot. Now our kids have said, Dad, that was great. We could have used a little more structure. <laughs> You're big people, create your own structure. I discovered there's an actual name for this. It's called the empowerment model of family. So there's all sorts of patterns so what kind of model will best suit you? But then we have to ask this question. What do we do with the leftover stuff we don't like? Because there's always leftover stuff you don't like. And it's what you do with the leftover stuff you don't like that defines you more than almost anything else. Because it's how families deal with the absence of idealism when it's not quite everything you hoped for that'll make the difference of how people feel that they belong or don't belong. And if you haven't noticed, as the father of your soul, that's exactly what God does for you. You think you're amazing? He goes, you're pretty good. Uh, you could stand a little bit of work. And it's what you do with that little bit of work piece that describes and defines your connection even with the Almighty. So let's take one big pictured look at a model. I always like models to show. Here's a model of family relationships, a chart, if you will. Here's the chart. It starts at the top with an initial commitment. The initial covenant or commitment. Throughout history, these have been called marriage. Of course, other places, they're betrothal. When you work, as I did in the earliest days of uh, immigrant populations of Southeast Asia, they had their own cultural ceremonies that they often did in the camps that later weren't recognized by the US government. So I ended up doing just endless numbers, dozens and dozens of wedding ceremonies for Southeast Asians who were already married, but the government didn't recognize it. 
I do a lot of things in Harlem. And because of some of the enculturated pieces there, they still do some old African ceremonies. It's interesting to be a part of. Because of what I do internationally, we see these. But there is this moment where we say, are we going to be us? Now, one of the challenges of 21st century families, because of divorce and children of divorce who don't want to do that either to themselves or to other people, they postpone this. Let's give it a go over a period of time and live together and see what may or may not happen. We've been tough on some of them, but it's because they haven't known what to do with the leftover stuff when their family didn't go like they hoped it would. So families always start with an initial covenant. There's a degree of commitment. Then as you move your way around, there's a degree of grace. Now, you know this. If there's at least four of you in a family or more, there's always someone at any given moment who needs a little extra grace. You laugh, it is so true. Here's what I also find interesting. If you put it to a vote, the person who needs extra grace, everyone will agree who it is. And it's always a surprise to that person. <laughs> I'm serious. They go, seriously? Seriously, you, you think it's me? Duh. You go, yeah, but, but see, I, but I, I need, of course you do. You're the extra grace person. Nobody wants to be the extra grace person, unless they do want to be the extra grace person. As you move your way around, there's a degree of empowerment. Families that understand empowerment, it's so significant. It's as if the family breathes strength and hope and courage into you. As I said last night, I don't want to be cheesy, but it's almost like the family becomes the wind beneath your wings. It gives you a strength you would not have on your own. And if you are part of another family, you will may not get it. It's an empowerment factor. And then it's intimacy, that sense of being connected and belonging. Our youngest son had the, the toughest challenge of all of our kids growing up. Good, good kid, love the guy. But just had more challenges than the other kids growing up. It was funny when we would meet with um, way too many people at the high school. They would say, we've never had a kid like this before. I said, you're welcome. <laughs> they didn't take it that way. And here's what they said. We've never seen a kid who caused us this much issue at school who would do nothing to violate what he had at home. He knows what he has at home, and he won't sacrifice that for anything. I was intrigued by him. Because he knew what he had at home, he would be in trouble without it. And he would do anything to preserve home. But outside of home, life was up for grabs. So let's move towards the text. If family is really, we represent God to each other. I want to sell you on that concept. In family structures, whether it's blood relative, whether it's groups of people you gather together, whether it's extended family, in reality, we represent God to each other. I want to go to 1 Peter this morning. 
First Peter sets up for us a whole sense of what it's like to be like, he calls us aliens and strangers in this land. We are people of the kingdom. We're not just people of this world. And so he tries to give them pictures of what it's like. And he goes, the best thing I can give you is that this is about we represent God to each other. And as we do, we represent his holiness to each other, which means, come on, this is how we treat each other. This is how we treat each other. When we talk about holiness, it's usually some sort of human behavior modification. That is absolutely not what the text is talking about this morning. The text is talking about with absolute respect, you treat each other with the holy standards that God has set out for himself and you pass them on to one another. If I'm ever invited back here again, I've got a sermon I would love to give here. I think you might be the audience for it. It's called, It's Time to Make Holiness Sexy Again. <laughs> yeah, maybe you're the wrong audience. Uh, we'll, we'll see. There's just something so appealing about God's holiness when we pass it on to other people. It's the utmost of respect and honor. No one feels violated. No one feels abused or taken advantage of. You treat people the way God treats you in his holiness. Now that's a good gig right there. If we can capture that one, we're on our way to really representing him to each other. As we move on into chapter two, he begins to be very specific. I love these letters that are written for us in the Newer Testament because they unfold much like a literary piece with literary device. They have structure to them. And so here's what he says right in the middle of chapter two. He said, it's time for us to live as people who are free. Not to use our freedom as a cover for any kind of evil. And then he says the definitive statement in this first half of this letter. He says, show proper respect for everyone. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the brotherhood of believers. Fear God. Honor the king. He covers the gamut. This theme of show proper respect to everyone then begins to unfold. In the very next paragraph, which starts at verse 18 of chapter 2, he very specifically says, now slaves, here's what it looks like for you. Now here's one of the things that fascinates me about the Bible. God established very early on in Genesis what he expected and what he didn't want. And very rapidly, humanoids like us decided to do it our own way. Here's what intrigues me most. We're in Genesis chapter 2. In Genesis chapter 2, God makes it so clear. Here's what I want for couples being together. There's one man, one woman, forever. We only get to chapter four, and some guy goes, hey, God, can I please have two? Now, notice a couple things. No woman's asking for more than one man. Please note that. And instead of saying, dude, what's wrong with you? I just said two chapters ago, come on. But instead he accommodates and says, as long as you guys are gonna do this, let's figure out how to at least treat each other with respect. 
This would be an ideal place in the Newer Testament to address slavery. Of course, from our traditions, it has a cultural and, and racial and color base to it. It did not exclusively in that day, and now around the world, they tell us that there are more people enslaved than at any other time in history, and it's very different than ours. And he just comes back to this thing. If you are one who is enslaved, you've got to show respect for people around you as well, even as a slave. The next application he gives is to wives, beginning of chapter 3. He said, wives... Here's what it's like for you to show proper respect. And he gives some instruction. And, and then he says this thing that's either unfortunate or just amazingly hilarious. In chapter 3, verse 6, he says, it's sort of like Sarah. Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him master. Now, we have men sitting here who go, stop. Say it again. <laughs> Say it again. And Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him. Wait up, wait for it. Master. And there are a few here who would say, Amen. <laughs> let's just let's just stop there, shall we? Yeah, in your dreams, big boy. Because that's not where the text stops. The text goes on and says the next, the third group that has to learn how to show proper respect for other people, for husbands. Says, husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way and treat them with respect. And then he gives the punchline, he says, so that your prayers won't be hindered. Men, look at me for just a minute. I can explain most of your life. I can explain large portions of your relationships. I'm dead serious. When we treat people with respect... There is a, a power of God that answers our prayers. And if we don't, you know what happens. There are so many things in the Bible that are called prophetic blessings. God will do his part if or when you do yours. They're conditional. If you follow through on this, God will do his part. It's not classic behaviorism, but there's conditions and warnings. This is one of them for the men of our audience. For the people you love the most, show proper respect. Live with them in an understanding way so that your prayers won't be hindered. And then there's the fourth group, which starts in verse 8. Finally, all of you. If you don't fit slaves, you don't fit wives, you don't fit husbands, and there's a lot of us who don't. The rest of us. He says to the rest of us, let's do this. Let's live in harmony with one another. Let's love. Let's be compassionate and humble. Come on, don't be those kind of people who repay evil for evil, but rather with a blessing. 
If we look at family structures, we represent God to each other. It's not primarily a role. We simply represent God. There's three big principles I want to address. The first one is to offer understanding. It doesn't seem that difficult, but boy, in the heat of the moment, sometimes it is. Or when it just seems like they are somewhere between wrong and idiotic, or let's be kinder, insensitive, it's hard to offer understanding. I learned so long ago that instead of being right, if I would just offer understanding, everybody around me would be slightly better. I wish they'd be greatly better, but they're not. Last night we did have fun. It was a, a thing for couples. We always define couples very differently. I use the word partner because so many of the places I go, people are not married. I, I will be going for a six-week gig um, in February to Western Australia. And there the, uh, the marriage rates are so low that the public schools are actually trying to figure out what to do because they're having trouble legally with who's the guardian of these kids. And so they're, they're actually having meetings. To, to, the public school is coaching parents on how to get married so that the kids legally have more rights. It's intriguing. So we just simply use the term partner. So much of what I do and have done over the years works with people who are currently not married, who have all sorts of history, either with each other or with who knows how many dozens of other people. And so we use the word partnership. Last night, I coached couples and said, one of the things that makes the best partner in marriage is the same thing that takes to make an ideal missionary. You've never thought about this before. You simply enter the world of the other person. Instead of telling them how you think it should be, what they need, how to do it better, you enter their world and seek to understand them. One of the implications of this passage is that someone, and I will argue both culturally and from the text, that somebody has to set the tone in the home. Every place I go, I, I try to go places where I'm most needed. I save my time for places either nobody else wants to go or nobody else can go. I do regular things in Harlem. I do most of my stuff internationally. And one of the things that we always focus on is who sets the emotional tone of the home. Let me talk about it for just a moment. Whoever is living together, we're going to call it home because that's where you live and that's where you belong. The emotional tone can be set and doing pretty well, and then one other person comes in. Whatever that other person brings in can change the whole tone. I've watched so many families. Home's going along pretty well in the evening, and then dad comes home. And when dad comes home, the whole tone changes. I thought I might get some applause. I thought I might... Some of you aren't looking either side of you. You're looking straight ahead. Very smart. Very smart. And I just say one of the things we've never done is taught men how to set the emotional tone of the home. That tone makes such a difference. It was such a challenge sometimes 
By the time I was 26, I had four children. I do not highly recommend it at all. It happened. You have to deal with it. Diana wasn't a morning person. Mornings were tough at our house. And so I had plenty to do. I was a grad student. I was pastoring a growing church. I was doing a number of other things. And so what I would do is get up early, go to the office, do some things. And then the last 20 minutes before the kids left for school, I'd come back home. They didn't notice that I wasn't there until I got home. And then it was like, Dad's here. This is good. Everything goes well. When they got older, I said, you, you, you guys know I came back home. And they go, yeah, we thought you were just there to, uh, to like, you know, hug us, kiss us, pray for us, send us off to school. I said, oh, I did that. I came home to protect you. <laughs> and they go, yeah, mom wasn't a morning person, was she? And I said, mm -mm, not, not at all. And instead of talking about it or making it tough, I just adjusted schedule. So I was back home. You're welcome. And their question was, how did you think to do that? You give understanding. You set the tone. You do what it takes to represent God well to each other. The second implication of this passage is listen. If you're going to live with each other in an understanding way, you listen. Listen intrigues me so much. Let's just stop with the obvious and the overly simplistic. Look at a person beside you. Please look at them. I'm sorry. Please look at them. Do you notice they have two ears and one mouth? Most do. That means listen twice as much as you talk. Overly simplistic. Great principle of life. Here's one of the challenges. As we've coached couples forever, we have to say, here's one of the problems. There's always one of you that can talk way more than the other one. We're not going to assign gender here. You know who you are. And so we have to say, please don't say everything you want to say. Please try to be more concise so the other person can actually hear, listen, and understand. If you talk four times more than they can listen, it all gets lost and everybody's frustrated. So... A, talk less. B, listen lots more. Let me coach you on listening. Listening is one of those things where you pay attention to what is said, what's not said. You pay attention to the details. You listen to the little things. My youngest daughter said to me one time, Dad, I know you read widely, but I'm pretty sure you don't read 17 magazine every month. I said, you're, you're right. I do not read 17 every month. And she said, I thought so, so I want you to read this. And she goes, here's a copy of it. I'd like you to read this for me. Well, she not only had, gave me the magazine, she actually put a post-it in the, the article she wanted me to read and then highlighted the parts she wanted me to get. <laughs> and the whole article is about how to affirm your daughter. And I looked at it and went, I thought I was pretty good at this. I actually thought I was good. And as I read the article, it said, the, the weakness of almost all parents and people who want to affirm their daughter is that it's far too general, and they never update it. They said, as, as your daughter gets older, as a young woman gets older, the affirmation and validation needs to become far more, far more specific. And I thought, oh, that's what she wants me to get. And so I said to her, 
I got it. And she goes, Dad, I love that you love me. I do. But she said, you tell me the same things at 17 you told me when I was eight. I need you to update it. I listened. I listened. I discovered in my own life something that we developed called a family council. As I listened to other families, I, I noticed that a lot of the tensions happen at family meals. And I thought, family meals need to be sort of a safe time, not a war zone. And so one of the things to do is just create a family council. So once a week, or if you don't need it that often, once a month, whenever you just bring stuff up that needs to be addressed. We had moved to Canada. It was my first professorship. It was not fun living there, but it was a good gig for me, a good cross-cultural experience for our children. Except it was, it was tough adjustment. And things were not going well at all. Now, I was the dad. I knew exactly what was wrong. It was them. <laughs> and so we had a family council. We went through the formality of it. And so we did all the nice things and then said, OK, it's time to talk. Things clearly are not good here. What's going on? And the first child spoke and said, Dad, you're too angry. And I, yeah, right. I'm the nicest guy I know. <laughs> and I thought that was true. And I sort of dismissed it and went to the second one. The second one didn't even look at me, looked down and said, yeah, yeah, Dad, I, I, I agree. I went, well, you didn't have your own, so power of suggestion, you went with this one? Come on. And I looked around the group and I said, is, is this like a mutiny or what? And they all said the same thing. I said, okay. In my mind, this is not the issue. And if you guys are right, then you have to help me. Tell me what's going on. And in their mind, it was my being tense and me telling more than I listened, which I didn't think was my style. Subtle adjustment, dramatic outcomes. Now, are you the one in your family who needs to listen and understand more? If so, today, today the adjustment has to start. Third principle is right here for us. You pass on the blessing. Let's talk about a blessing as it appears to us in the Older Testament. There's characteristics of a blessing in Scripture. Here they go. It's meaningful touch. Just simply meaningful touch. There is a clear spoken word with a person's name used. There's a high value assigned or attached to the one who's being blessed. You regard them highly. There's a special future pictured for them. Again, has to be updated as we go along. Too general, you're amazing, you can do lots of things, God is with you. Those are great, but sometimes it needs to be far more specific. Then actively committed to stand behind that person. I learned this one so young. It was early days of seminary. I was living in the north side of Chicago. I had to work. The only job I could get, I had three little kids. The only job I could get was stocking shelves at an all-night grocery store, giant grocery store. And so I was a part of the midnight crew. I had to work midnight to 8.30. I had a half-hour break. And at 9 o'clock, after I'd driven a half hour, I had to do Hebrew at seminary. I don't recommend that either. But I was the youngest one. I think there were six of us on the crew. We had all these 
big, big piles of cardboard. And my job as the newest guy, very low tech, was to go back, bind it all up, and then take it outside. The machine never worked right, especially never worked right for me. I was back there one night far too long trying to fix this thing. It just didn't seem to work right. The crew chief comes back. He's 27. He works this job because he has to have high structure. It's the only way he can stay sober and clean. He's in recovery. He's 27 years old. He comes back and he goes, doctor boy, what are you doing back here? said, I can't get this thing to work. He comes over, kicks it, punches one button. It works perfectly, of course. So I look at him mostly out of frustration. I raise my hand and I said, bless you, my son. It was just instead of saying thank you. And he just froze and he looked at me. All of a sudden, tears start coming down his face. And he said, I've just been blessed by a priest. I did tell him I was 25 and had three kids, and I was Protestant. (laughs) And he he just turned and walked away, muttering to himself, I've been blessed by a priest. Now, here's what was funny. Over the next few days, he brought in his mother, both of his sisters. (laughs) Oh, no. He brought in his 83-year-old grandmother on a walker. She hugged me, kissed me an uncomfortably long time (laughs) because I was the one who blessed her alcoholic grandson and he was going to be better now. And I went, if one phrase from somebody that's kind of a joke makes that much difference, imagine, just imagine if it's someone who matters, who looks you in the eye and speaks those words and a meaningful touch. I want to wrap up today by talking you through what it looks like when you redeem a family. Guys, let's go to the slide of redeeming the Sanders family name. Here's the Sanders family as we know it. It was mid-19th century. There was a physician in London. He was Dr. Sanders. His name was George. He was a bit of an adventurer. He was bored in London. So with his two young sons, along with his wife, he came to Boston, got to Boston and figured out it was just sort of a smaller country version of London. And he was bored. And he heard that in Ohio, there was this thing called the Western Reserve and there was free land and other things. And Cleveland was a beginning of a city. And so he moved his family out there and practiced medicine, but also gained some lands and some other stuff. He had two sons, two sons. The oldest was the responsible one. He was George as well. He too became a physician. The younger one was irresponsible. He was a gambler, a drinker, and a womanizer. My side of the family. Dreadfully irresponsible. He had seven sons. The youngest was a set of twins. Soon after the twins were born, he abandoned the family. Two years after he abandoned the family, his wife came down with something and died, and all seven boys ended up in an orphanage, including the youngest, twins. My grandfather was uh, Norman Sanders Sr. He had four sons. 
He was an orphan. He married another orphan. They set out to have a different kind of life. My father was the oldest, Norman Sanders Jr. He had three sons. As far as we know, there was no faith through the generations of the Sanders. As a 20-year-old, with, married with one child and one on the way, on the same day, Diana and I came to faith in Christ. Same day. And we started a new journey. Two sons and two daughters. I became Dr. Sanders, again, another doctor. And here's what happened. Within six months of coming to faith, my whole family, my whole family came to Christ. What I found interesting as my two sons got older is they found young men without fathers, gathered them together, would take them on long hiking and canoe trips, and at the end do a manhood ceremony for them. They would invite me to come to the shores, bring gifts and put a blessing on these young men. I still remember the time they called and they go, Dad, would you mind if you didn't come this time? We think instead of giving a father blessing, we're going to give a manhood blessing. And we're men, and we want to welcome them into their manhood. So the family moves from irresponsibility, drunkenness, etc., to generations who bless other generations. There's a new addition. Can we see the picture? <laughs> These are the newest twins. Youngest daughter, Lauren, also a doctor, a lawyer. Had the twins seven weeks ago. This, of course, unless you think they're amazing children, uh, this was Halloween. <laughs> and I said, how did you decide which one's Clark Kent? She goes, I figured out which one spits up the most. And I have more than one button-up shirt, but I only have one Superman outfit. So the one who spits up the most had to become Clark Kent. <laughs> twins, twins, twins. And one of them is George again. We're wrapping up. I'm going to ask you to do something today. Although you're a part of a family, there's no pressure on you. If you're sitting with someone, there's no pressure on you to participate because other members of your family have. This is reboot time. You know this. And today's about family. It's time to change the future destiny of your family. It starts with you. So in just a moment, if you're one of those who says, I want to reboot my role in the family I'm a part of. In just a moment, I'm going to ask you to stand. And then we're going to ask some people around you who are comfortable with praying to pray with you. And I'm going to pray a, a specific prayer of blessing and empowerment. If you're a part of a family and others with you stand and it's not your day to stand, don't stand. But for some of you, it's a day to reboot your role your responsibility, the role you want to play in your family. One of the reasons I love doing this with families, particularly in places like Harlem and other places like it, is we get a chance to change a family's name for generations to come.
It happened for the Sanders. It can happen for lots. If today's your day to reboot family and you want a specific prayer, just stand where you are right now. Stand. Yes. Now, for those of you who are comfortable being people who pray for people, just go put your hand upon them. Come on, move around. Just keep it pretty low. Just keep it pretty low. Those of you who stood, please look at me. Come on. This is not a prayer. This is a blessing. So you look up. Don't look down. Get your hands out there. Get ready to receive. The God of creation, the God of the heavens, is also the father of your soul. That is one of the coolest things on the planet, that the creator of the universe is your father. And as such, he knows your name. He's not surprised by your life. Some of you may actually be quite surprised at how much he thinks of you. Sometimes even in a good way, how much he thinks about you. But he's got something for you that you've not captured quite yet. And so today, he wants to give you something. But the first thing is there's something for you to leave behind. And what's time to leave behind are the regrets, the patterns that don't deserve to be there. And the idea that you don't deserve this. So listen. The father of the universe, the father of your soul, knows your name. And so today, in a unique way, listen as he speaks it. And here's the kind of thing he says to people like you. I have something for you, my son or my daughter. I have something for you. He often says something like, you're better than you know. I'd like you to press into this and receive it and begin to pass on the best of what I've given to you. For some of you, if you'll listen, he actually tends to say something like, you're the kind of daughter any real man would be proud to have. Let me say it again. You're the kind of real daughter. The real father be proud to have. Let it sink in. And very often, men, he says things like this to you. You're my son. You are my son. I have welcomed you. But I'm waiting to be wanted by you. Stop doing things for me 
and just come be with me. I want to teach you what it's like to be a man. A man who represents me. A man who passes on what I've given. And if you never heard it from an earthly father, sometimes he will say to men like you, you too are the kind of son any real man would be proud to have. He says that sort of thing, you know. So let it come. And as it comes, let it sink in deeply. Because your job becomes simply passing it on. The appropriate touch, the look in the eye, the speaking someone else's name, the picturing for them a future that they're not quite sure they can do in their own strength. And then saying to them, I want to be there with you and for you to make sure this happens. It's the exact thing the Father says to you. City Church, let's do this together, shall we? Let's do this together. There's orphan spirit people all over the place. There's people who are not sure they belong. Include them. I have discovered now as a single man in my 60s for the first time in my whole life, a meal, good affection, Meaningful touch, it's worth a lot. Pass it on. So today, today, may you have a sense of the Father's hand of blessing just coming to rest upon you. Now don't move to the right or left in any way that you move out from under that hand of the fullness of God's blessing. And then as it comes, Simply pass on what you have been given. Just pass on what you have been given. And so today, for all of you who stood, I bless you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Enjoy the best of what he's given you. And as you are able, pass it on broadly. Pass it on. Amen. Amen. Let's all stand together. We're going to conclude our time in worship. Oftentimes we have prayer down front with our prayer team, but I think God is already stirring and touching hearts. And so what we're going to do as a conclusion is we're going to just simply worship together. Martin is going to be out in the foyer. If you would like to stop and talk with him, I'd encourage you to take off now. Okay, you can stay if you want. He's bigger than me. So demanding. So demanding, I know, right? Let's give him a hand again. Thank you, Martin. And let's close our eyes, open our hearts, and just leave our hands up for a moment. I want to encourage you to stay for worship if you would like to.
you need to exit because of timing or your heart is full, feel free to slip out. But now may the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May God turn his face towards you and give you grace and peace. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, and our soon coming King, amen and amen. Let's worship when your heart's full, you can slip out. God bless.